The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. A few years ago, I, uh, I preached a series on the story of Joseph found in the book of Genesis. And since then, I have had several requests for the recorded messages and unfortunately, we do not have those messages because during that series, we had what we'll just say are, uh, were technical difficulties. And so I think the series was really helpful to a lot of people. And um, I've wanted those of you who are new to our church to be able to experience those teachings. And so with it being a spring break week, which is notoriously a low uh, attendance Sunday, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a break. From our journey through the book of 1 Peter, and for this week and next, I'm going to preach the first two installments of the Joseph series. And then the following Sunday, we're going to pick back up on uh, our series in 1 Peter. So from there, on Wednesday nights, after the two Sundays, on that following Wednesday night, I'm going to finish out for the next several Wednesdays, I'm going to finish out the... uh, Joseph series. Now, here's my hope. Wednesdays aren't well enough attended, all right? And God is really moving on Wednesday nights. It's been incredible to see what God's doing. So here's my hope. I'm going to whet your appetite a little bit with these first two messages and then tell you you have to come on Wednesdays to hear the rest. So just be, at least I'm honest about it, right? So as we think about Joseph, here's what's interesting to me. It's interesting that only two chapters in the book of Genesis are dedicated to to the story of creation. Yet, the last 13 chapters are given to Joseph's story. I mean, just just let that sink in a moment. There's a key doctrine throughout the, the final part of Genesis there that I think the Lord really wants us to see through Joseph's story. And we refer to this as the doctrine of divine providence. And that is simply this. It has to do with the sovereignty of God. And here's what that means. Divine providence means this, that God is involved in everything and he is involved with everyone. You may not perceive him, but God is involved in everything and he is involved with everyone. You know, there are some people who believe that, yes, God created the world and all that's within but now that he, they think he's kind of unengaged or just up in heaven just kind of twiddling his thumbs or being about his own business and just leaving us to ourselves. No, friends, God is still very much active within the world. Amen? He is sovereign. Now, there's some mystery here because even though God is sovereign, there's an element of choice decisions that we get to make. Like I, I think in some way that we still as human beings are able to make decisions. We have an aspect of what we might call free will. But the great news when you think about God's sovereignty is this. Our choices do not thwart the plans of God. Because you know what? Friend, God is bigger than our choices. Do you believe that? It's interesting, God is certainly not the author of sin. He does not make people sin. He does not want people to sin. He does not condone sin. Yet God in his sovereignty allows a measure of sin. And yet his divine purposes are accomplished 
in spite of that sin. Because you know what? God is bigger than our sin. Are you grateful for that? Here's what God does. He takes the good, he takes the bad, and he takes the ugly, and he makes all things work together for our good and for his glory. If we are indeed in Christ, we can see this doctrine of his providence displayed so clearly in the story of Joseph. So over the next few weeks, we're going to see the dysfunction that's part of Joseph's family and how many people come against him and how the odds are kind of stacked against him. And yet, God's purposes still prevail in Joseph's life. And that's really good news for those of us who might be up against some odds right now. We'll see how by God's grace he overrules people's sin and even their bad decisions to be, bring about his good purposes for his glory. He raises up a hero in Joseph, saves a family, and creates a nation that will bring a blessing to all the world. I love the way that Pastor Mark Driscoll explains divine providence. He says this, that metaphorically, God works with two hands to accomplish his sovereign will. With one hand, God works in what we would call direct intervention. All right? And we would call these workings, we would call them miracles. All right? When God parted the Red Sea, that would be direct intervention. That's a miracle. When God heals the sick, when he opens a barren womb, these are examples of direct intervention, what we call miracles, and how many believe that he still works in that way today, amen? We serve a God of the miraculous. Many of us have witnessed divine interventions through healing or other miracles, and those are glorious times. But listen, God doesn't always work that way, and I would even argue that's not the normal way that God works, that's not the most frequent way that God works, through that miraculous like that. He works most of the time with what we would call his invisible hand, where he indirectly or very subtly brings about his sovereign will. And this could be when God gives you certain talents or gifts or he puts you in the right place at the right time or he keeps you from the wrong place at the wrong time. God is working behind the scenes he is still in control. These are times when you may not perceive him, but friends, he is always working. Amen? Let me give you a really practical example that I was reminded of this week. There's a family who several years ago was just broken, um, ready just to crumble. They were hurting and living far from the Lord. And a mother of this family happened to be graduating from the Medical, Technical, and Career College here in town. Now, we had a connection to this school within the church, and they needed a place to hold their graduation. So this medical career college calls me and says, Hey, Pastor, we would love to use your church for our graduation. I thought, Sure, you can use our facility. And they said, Oh, by the way, one more thing. We'd like you to give our commencement speech at a medical and technical career college, all right? I freak out when people take my blood. I'm probably not the one like that you want up there talking about this profession. So, and I thought to myself, Lord, what in the world? Like I could see a Bible college, okay, that would even be a stretch. Why, why, why would you ask me? But a medical, technical, and career college. But it just so happened that this broken lady was graduating that particular day. 
This place was packed out. I mean, we had extra chairs up front. In the, we had chairs in the foyer. People were everywhere in this small building. I thought, man, if we could just be like that on Sundays, we would be golden, right? And so out of all those people, right before the ceremony, I was a little bit nervous and I wanted to kind of make light of it. So I, I walked back through this door and in the foyer there, there's three ladies standing there trying to make sure their hair is right for a picture, right for their graduation, right? I photobomb them. One of them happened to be a lady by the name of Tori, this lady who I'm talking about. I told her this week she was going to be in my, my sermon, by the way. I didn't ask permission. I just told her. But um, <laughs> just to be sure. Uh, she's probably watching now. But we just, we connected. We connected and... Um, I come up here and I give a commencement speech and I don't know anything about the medical profession. So I just talked about what I know. I talked to some about leadership, about education, and then I, I, I talked about ministry. It's not a Christian school. I just, it's all I know to talk about. And so that, that's, that's what I spoke on. And the Lord used that commencement speech to spark something in Tori's heart and her husband Joseph was there as well. And we connected after the ceremony. That Easter, just a couple weeks later, they came to our church. Their family was brought back to the Lord. I ended up baptizing both of their kids shortly thereafter and their lives were absolutely turned around. They're not here at the church now only because they moved out of state back to Tennessee but uh, just spoke to Tori just two weeks ago on the phone and, and uh, they still love Jesus and... Uh, Friends, that is divine providence. Here's, here's what I believe. I believe that all of that happened so that Tori could hear about the love of God and that her family could be restored. That's how much God loves us. Like, can you see this? Like, that night you wouldn't go, okay, well, we're certainly here for one family so they could start coming to Real Life Community Church. No, you don't know. But when you look back, how many, listen, some people might call that coincidence, friends. I don't call it coincidence. I think that's a loving, awesome, all-powerful, omniscient God who works all things together for our good and for his glory. Amen? That is divine providence. I'll give one more quick example. Um, I, I saw uh, Chad and Kelly, you're, you're here. Listen, I, I talked about them a couple Wednesdays ago, but really cool thing, um, uh, Jeremy here was so kind to his company. Um, they, they installed our floor at no cost to the church. And Jeremy was brand new to the church, and they installed our uh, flooring in the fellowship hall. And if you saw our carpet that was in there, you would really thank him for that. Like, um, like I don't almost you know, lose my cookies every time I walk in there now. My office is through that room, and these big stains, nasty, that I think were like alive on the carpet. <laughs> So he says, hey, listen, we're going to do this for you. And, and he's a part of our church. But Chad, who's sitting next, next to him here, he's, he donates a Friday and a Saturday to come in here and, to, and to, to help lay this floor. But it wasn't about a floor. Because while he's here, he says he'd never felt a peace like this. And he was searching, right? And God spoke to him. He ended up coming to the church that Sunday. I don't think you guys have missed a Sunday since. I really don't. It's been months ago. And uh, long story short, both he and his fiancée were saved and in my office just weeks later um, on a Saturday morning. Both received Christ and their lives had been changed. That was about more than a floor. It was a setup. All right? It was a setup. 
And, uh, and it's awesome. And here's the thing. I didn't know it was a setup. All right? I, I didn't go to Jeremy and say, listen, now here's what's going to happen. You're going to invite this guy, Chad. I, I know he's, you know, there's some things wrong with him. We're going to fix him while he's here, all right? <laughs> I didn't say that. No, I didn't know. I didn't know Chad, anything about him. But that's just the way God works. He's always working. Hallelujah. So with that in mind, I'm going to ask you real quickly just to stand with me. We're going to read Genesis 37, beginning in verse 1. Genesis 37 and verse 1. Here's what the Word of God says. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers he was a boy with the sons of Billah and Zilpah, his father's wives, plural. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. And now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. And then he dreamed another dream and he told his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. This is the word of the Lord, and you may be seated. Well, through this text, I want to quickly look at just three characters. I want to look at Joseph's father, Jacob. I want to look at Joseph's brothers. And then I want to just start looking at Joseph just briefly this morning to kind of set up this series. So we'll begin by looking at Jacob. And specifically, if you're taking notes, I want to look at Jacob's error. Jacob's error. Jacob, as I said, is Joseph's father. He's one of the great patriarchs of our faith. He's the son of Isaac. He is the grandson of Abraham. Jacob is a man of God and he's used by the Lord in many ways. But here's what I want you to see. that Though all of that is true, Jacob is still not a perfect man. None of us are. It's important to see that Joseph does not come from a perfect home. As a matter of fact, there's quite a bit of dysfunction in his family. There's a little bit of crazy in his house. And I'll just ask this morning, how many have just a little bit of crazy in your family somewhere? Come on, somebody. See, this is good news to me that Joseph has a little bit of dysfunction in the house because this means that dysfunction in the family does not thwart the plans of God. Because God, hear me, is bigger than our dysfunction. Can you say amen to that? Let's talk about jo Jacob for a moment. Jacob has not one, not two, not three, but hear me, four wives. 
four women in one house fighting for the same man, there's bound to be a little crazy. Just saying. I'll leave that one right there. Not only that, Jacob has 13 children, 12 boys, and one girl. Even the Mormons are going, dude, that's a lot of kids. <laughs> Friends, this is a breeding ground for dysfunction. Dear Lord, forgive me for that. Isn't it interesting how the Bible seems to highlight dysfunction of almost every person in the Bible except for one, because there is none dysfunction, Jesus Christ? Friends, this shows that we all, even the best of us, we have a need for a Savior. And God throughout the Bible, here's what's so interesting. He uses rather dysfunctional people to bring about His good purposes. He still does this today. Have you ever read the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1? The genealogy of Jesus Christ? I mean, God used some really dysfunctional people to bring Christ into the world. I mean, it's incredible. Now, there's something about Jacob's parenting. We're going to talk about Jacob's error that I want to point this out. It's causing great tension in his home, and here's what it is. It's favoritism. How many of you were your mom or dad's favorite? Just be honest this morning. Come on, right? If you're sitting next to your brother or sister, we're going to have some fights this morning. Verse 3 says this, Now Israel, who's Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. Jacob favors Joseph. He's the second youngest, and he's the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph exemplifies great maturity and great wisdom at a young age, and Jacob loves him most. And he bestows on him privileges that would normally be saved for the oldest son. This is a huge deal in this time. Jacob connects with Joseph on a different level that he doesn't connect with, with the other kids. Some children, how many know, are just easier to raise than others. It's more natural and with our personalities, and we might find it easier to connect with, with certain children over the others if you have more, multiple kids. I hear a lot of conversation. You're all thinking, yeah, you're, you're naming that kid right now. <laughs> I have two children. I have a 19-year-old, and soon to be 20, and I have a 16-year-old. And um, Dylan and I have, have a lot in common. We have a love for sports. We love basketball. Go Cats, right? And um, we have a love, we, we both love hymns. We, we love that, that type of music and um, urban gospel music. We love that. And uh, as a matter of fact, we're going to a conference together um, right after service today. The Gospel Coalition, my, my favorite preachers, Piper and Keller and some of the other ones are, are going to be there. And it's in Indianapolis. And I asked Connor, Connor, would you like to go with me? It's his spring break. And he just looked at me, 16, like not on your life, Dad, right? <laughs> So I've got some of these things in, in, in common with Dylan, but it doesn't mean that I write Connor off or that I, I love him any less or give him less attention. Instead, here's what you do. You try, to, you try harder to find. We can always find a point of connection. And I'm really grateful. One of the things that Connor has really gotten into is, is a love for, he's got a love for music. He's songwriting now. That's all I did as a teenager. I, I wrote an entire album worth of music, was re recorded that, and it's horrible, but, um, <laughs> but, but I wrote it. 
Yeah, but I love that. And, you know, I'm a musician, and I use that term loosely. And, and Connor is, a, is an incredible musician. He's got a natural inclination towards music. And so, you know, we have that in common. And then one of the reasons, frankly, that I've gotten into guns um, in the last five years is because that's something Connor loves. It's not something that I was raised around. It was never a particular interest of mine. I enjoy it now. But, but I, I wanted to find that point of connection, things that we can do together. And so... I think that's really important because here's, here's what we're told not to do when it comes to parenting. We're told not to provoke our children. We're supposed to raise them up in the admonition of the Lord and not provoke them. And you know a sure way to provoke your child is to show favoritism. This gets even more interesting in Joseph's life because not only does Jacob love Joseph more, but he makes him a coat of many colors to prove it. This would be like you if you have a favorite son, giving him a shirt that says, I'm dad's favorite. <laughs> like those are some awkward moments in, in the living room at night or around the dinner table, right? Like if, if that's your favorite kid, don't announce it by giving him a t-shirt, all right, that says it. It's not wise. And this causes a great deal of grief and tension between Joseph and his brothers. Anytime there is favoritism, hear me, there's going to be friction. As a matter of fact, can I be honest? We've got to guard from this in the church. James writes about this, that there was preferential uh, treatment being given to the rich, certain social classes. You see this in the church of Corinth a little bit as well, and, and, and uh, God warns about showing favoritism. So wherever there's favoritism, there's going to be this kind of tension but here's what I want you to see. This is great news because haven't we all messed up as parents? And if you're a parent, you've made some bad decisions in your parenting. How many of you that are, who are parents, how many would go back and change something if you could? Right? I certainly would. But you know what gives me great hope? When I look at the Jacob's error and I look at the dysfunction in Joseph's home, I mean, you're going to see it's crazy, all right? God is bigger than our errors, He's bigger than our flaws. He's an awesome God. And, and here's what I'm blown away by. Listen, I started having kids when I was still a kid. I was 20 year, what, 22 years old, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I was young, all right? It's so long ago, I can't even remember, right? Like, I was young, and I didn't know what I was doing, and I was still a kid, not, not just by age, but I just was a kid in the way I acted. I was immature, and I made some horrendous, horrendous decisions as a parent. But I can't help to just bask in the, the grace of God as I look at both my children. I have a son today, a 19-year-old son, that wants to, to go listen to a bunch of, like, hours upon hours of old preachers today with me, all right? Like, he would, this is what he wants to do with his week. It's crazy. It blows my mind. He, he can't wait to worship God with a group of other men. And, and we're just excited. He wants to do that. And then yesterday I was with my other son. He was at um, Hallie Davenport's house, one of our other students. And he and Katie and Hallie were writing songs together. And my son has recently gotten into to rap music for whatever reason. And, uh, and that's fine. Like, I don't know where he gets that from. It's, it's fine. But here's what I love. Even though it's rap, and, and then, matter of fact, they wrote a worship song as well. They're not writing worldly stuff. Even the rap is not about the world. It's not gangster rap, all right? Thank the Lord. It's, it's not. It's beautiful. It is, it is Christian. 
It is so God-glorifying. And I, I went and listened. They recorded this worship song. And I just thought, man, here's three teenagers who could be writing about anything or doing anything else, and they're writing godly music about the, it's in there about the blood of Christ. I mean, it's tremendous. I hope they can perform it in the next few weeks. It's amazing. So I look at my children, and, and I go, wow, God, your grace is so evident. Like I didn't mess them up horribly. <laughs> like they should, like if you look at my decisions over the last 20, you know, 19 years of being a parent, like they shouldn't be this good, all right? I'm just saying, this is the evidence of, the, was that Connor? That was my son that said preach. <laughs> You're lucky I'm leaving for three days, Connor. <laughs> Listen, it's the grace of God. So I have people come to me every once in a while, and they'll say, hey, man, you've, you've got really great kids. Um, like, what'd you do? And I go, I don't want to tell you. Like, I, I don't want to tell you. I, listen, I could not write a book on parenting to save my life. It would, it would just be this. Depend on God's grace day by day. That's it. That's all I know to tell you. So God is bigger. I want you to know that because I don't want you to beat yourself up. Maybe you've made some really bad decisions as a parent or just as a Christian. I want you to know God is bigger than those bad decisions. Hallelujah. Amen. Glory to him. So that's Jacob's error. And then we go from that error to a natural progression, number two, to the brother's envy. The brother's envy. Right off the bat, we see that Joseph is the good kid. How many were the good kid growing up? Right? And here's what I know. I know that troubled kids don't like good kids because good kids make troubled kids look even worse, right? <laughs> Some honesty up in here. I love it. Not only does Joseph show them up by his behavior, but you know what he is? He's kind of a tattletale. When they're not working in the fields as hard as they should, he tells Jacob, Dad, they're goofing off on the job. And you see why he's not the favorite amongst the brothers, right? Joseph is the good kid. And then you add the obvious favoritism of Jacob into the mix. Friends, we have a recipe for trouble. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers. Did you catch that? They saw it. This was not hidden. They saw it. And they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. You know, I remember growing up, I had a brother. I have a brother. I remember growing up that um, thinking my brother at times was a nuisance, but I never remember hating him, being that angry to where I, I hated him. And these are strong words. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Here's what's interesting. Joseph's dream is from God. This isn't something Joseph conjured up in his heart. And his dream reveals that God is calling him to a place of leadership and authority. Get this, even over his family. This infuriates his brothers, understandably. I mean, they hate him already. And he says, by the way, um, God just told me I'm going to rule over you one day. You're going to bow down to me. This is great, right? So there is this deep-seated hatred and envy that Joseph's brothers feel towards him. And I'll say to you that envy is a breeding ground for dysfunction. Oh, we need to rid ourselves of that type of envy. So we've looked at the father, we've looked at his brothers, and now I want to look at Joseph's eagerness. Joseph's eagerness. 
Verse 6, he says to them, Hear this dream that I've dreamed. Behold, we're binding sheaves in the field. Behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. And his brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now here's what I want you to get. Joseph, being a 17-year-old, is stoked about this dream. Like he is excited and he cannot wait to tell his brothers. Now, wisdom would say that if your brothers already hate you, maybe don't tell them you're going to reign over them someday, right? Just saying. But here's what I see in this text. It seems that Joseph is ready. He's eager for this, what we might call adventure, right? Ready for this position of leadership. How many of you, maybe God's dropped something into your heart and he's put a ministry on your heart or, or, or maybe something else and, just, like, and you're just ready. Like you're just ready. Anybody else impatient in here besides me? Like if the Lord leads me in something, I'm ready. I'm like, let's get started, right? The book of Habakkuk says this, the vision is for an appointed time. Because here's what I know that normally happens. I mean, when you read through the Bible, you see this. That when God calls us to something great that we might perceive as great, there's always a time of preparation. There's always a season of preparation. But a lot of times what happens, we want to, we want to skip the preparation and just dive right into it. Joseph sees his dream as glamorous. I mean, wouldn't you? You just see people bowing down to you like, yeah, this is cool. I'll tell you what Joseph doesn't see. He doesn't see the cost that's about to come with leadership. He's about to enter a season of preparation, and it's not an easy season. You know the story. God uses Joseph to save his covenant people from famine, and yet Joseph's path to that position cost him so much. He's so hurt by his brother, sold into slavery, then falsely accused of sexual misconduct, falsely imprisoned. I mean, he just, one thing after another, but all of this is preparation, and you see in the end how God uses all of these things to get Joseph where he wants him to be. You know, I remember when I was in my late teens and early 20s, ministry to me looked so glamorous. I mean, I felt a burning call in my life to be a, a, a pastor, a preacher, and I was excited because I, I used to look at my, my like worship pastor at church. I thought, man, that's a, that's a cool job. Like you get paid to, to sing. Like this is, this is great, right? And to pick out songs every week and this, it looks really fun. And I looked at my pastor like, you, this is your job? Like you get to study the Bible and then teach it to people? This is great. There's just something I didn't know. Church people are crazy. <laughs> oh, I wasn't joking. <laughs> All right. So here, here's, what, here's what you don't understand here's what I didn't understand I didn't understand that when I was going to make one decision one group of people would be happy and the other ones would hate me and if I were to make the other decision it would be the reverse right like you just can't make everybody happy what, what I didn't know is that most church people don't want you to follow God's will they want you to follow their will right that's not true in this church you guys are really really kind to me but over the years I've been through some stuff and you know what I did I wanted to skip the preparation period so I did something really crazy when I was in my very, very early 20s, I think 21, maybe 22, I think it was 22, I decided because I had recorded all this music, I was ready 
to be an associate pastor and be a music pastor. Well, hey, you, you want to go to Bible college? You want to you go get your music degree, anything like that? Nope, I'm ready. I got this. I know how to sing. I know how to play guitar. I'm good. And friends, I get hired by some miracle at this wonderful church in, in Winchester, Mount Zion Christian Church, about 300, 350 people, full-time, and now I'm a worship leader. And I'm 22, and I've got to lead people who are twice and three times my age, and I have... I, it's three weeks in, and everybody else finds out, as well as me, that I have no clue what I'm doing. I remember uh, the first time I was asked to preach there, they literally had to lay hands on me because I had no clue what I was doing. And I, I went in the back. We had this little place where the worship team would pray, come out before service. And I was shaking like this, like not just a little bit, you know, like, but I was like convulsing almost because I was so nervous and they had to lay hands on me. I had no clue what I was doing. And so finally, years later, I decide, man, I've got to be, I've got to get prepared. So while I'm in ministry, I start going to school and, you know, I, I go and do the things I need to do. But so often, see, we want to skip the preparation part. We want to get on. Let's get on with it. But preparation is necessary. It doesn't look the same for all of it. But it, listen, if God's called you to something, there is a season of preparation. And here's what I want you to know, that just because God puts something in your heart doesn't mean it's going to be an easy road. It doesn't mean that you're not going to face challenges. Are you with me? Doesn't mean that it's going to be all cupcakes and rainbows. It's not. It's likely going to be a very difficult path. Now, there's a key verse in this series that we'll refer back and forth to. The book or the story of Joseph constantly pushes us, points us to Jesus Christ. Just keeps pointing us to Jesus. We see so many parts of the story that, that, that point us to Christ. But there's a great verse in 50, um, chapter 50, verse 20, the end of the story. Here's what happens. After Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, and then he's falsely accused of sexual misconduct, thrown into prison, all of this bad stuff hap happens. He's finally promoted to the prime minister, essentially, of Egypt. I mean, this is a great position. And now his brothers, who treated him so badly, and his father and everybody, they're at his mercy. And the brothers are thinking, because this is what they would do, he's going to kill us. He's going to retaliate. He's going to harm us. But I want you to get a glimpse of what Joseph's thoughts are. Look at verse 20 with me of Genesis chapter 50. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me. He's talking to his brothers. But God meant it for good. Now we have kind of fudged this verse through the years. You've probably heard it quoted from a pastor or from other Christians and they say, well, what the enemy meant for harm, God turned around and used it for good. Don't do that. That's not what it says. It says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And again, God's not condoning the sin that happened against Joseph, but yet he willed that Joseph would end up in that prison because that was the key to, to meeting some of Pharaoh's people that would eventually get him to the place to be the prime minister of Egypt and be able to save the covenant people. So here's what I want you to get. All of this, the, the dysfunction, all the hatred was meant by the people for harm, the brothers especially. 
But God meant it for good. God allowed Joseph to be hated, sold into slavery, falsely accused, yet he used all of these things, even the most gross of sins, to promote him to prime minister of Egypt and bring about his good purposes. Friends, this is divine providence. The brothers, are they guilty for the sin? Absolutely. But God used even the most horrible decisions to bring about his will. And this points us forward to Jesus Christ because in Acts 2.23, Peter's preaching this dynamite sermon at Pentecost. And here's what he says. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now stop there for a minute. You mean God willed for Jesus to be crucified? That's what it says. Why was Jesus crucified? Because it was part of God's saving plan. It was his definite plan, it says to him, and his foreknowledge. But then he says this in the second part. He says, you crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. You see the balance here? There's some mystery here. Jesus was delivered up and crucified according to God's plan, yet these men are responsible for their sin. You think of the story of Pharaoh in Egypt. The Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And, I mean, great tragedy came to Egypt. Have you ever thought about, well, Lord, if you, ha- if you harden Pharaoh's heart, why are they responsible? Why is he responsible? Have you ever thought through that? That's a fair question, I think. But here's what you've got to know. Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. He wasn't a godly man. He was out for his own purposes. God just gave him over to his own desires even more and used it for his glory. So God did not cause these brothers to do something that they were not willing to do. He just allowed them. He he gave them over to themselves. And through their horrible sin, Israel was saved. And ultimately Christ came through that lineage. Now, this points us to the gospel because here's what Jesus did. God sent Jesus into this world with the mission, great mission, of saving his people from their sins. That's what the Bible says. That's a kind mission, right? That's a nice mission. But how did the people respond? The same way they responded to Joseph. They hated him. They mocked him. His own people rejected him. Oh, he was loved by some, but many rejected him, and ultimately they crucified him. Those people are responsible for their sin, for the rejection of Jesus Christ, yet God used that very sin to bring forth. See, those people, here's what they thought. We've crucified him. We've thwarted the plan of God. We've gotten rid of Jesus Christ. Nope. All you did, you were like putty in his hands. All you did was bring the salvation, right? Because it's through his death that Jesus Christ appeased the wrath of God on our behalf, right? So this is incredible. God uses even the worst of those decisions to bring about his perfect will. So here's the good news. Here's the application. Your life right now, may seem to be spinning out of control. Some of it may be your fault because of your sin or bad choices. But some of it, you could be like Joseph, where you're like, you're trying to serve the Lord. But then all of a sudden, it's like 
all hell breaks loose in your life. And you're just going, God, what is this? Let me ask you, have you ever felt like God's maybe forgotten about you or doesn't see what's going on? You're like, hey, I know you're busy, but remember me? Can I just tell you he's at work when you don't see him? I just got really good news. If your life is in shambles right now, here's what I want you to know. God is bigger than your choices, your bad choices. He's bigger than your sin. God is bigger than your dysfunction. You have been, maybe you've been sinned against and you feel like, well, my life's over. God's bigger than that. He uses dysfunctional people who are part of dysfunctional families. Got a little bit of crazy, it's all right. It's all right, join the club. All right? I got a lot of crazy, all right? Just uh, join the club. People that know me are shaking their head, right? <laughs> I saw Hunter just like, <laughs> But isn't that great news? And it, your life may seem chaotic, but God's in control. But hear me, this is not, it's absolutely not a license to sin. If you know what you're doing right now is wrong, then you don't say, well, God's bigger than my sin. I'm going to know. You're going to take the hard way, the long way around. And I, if that's the way you approach Christianity, I would wonder if you're even a true Christian. If you would want to trample the blood of Christ by following your own way. What I'm saying is that we've all messed up. Anybody in here not sinned? That's what I thought. There are none righteous, no, not one. Everybody in here made some pretty bad decisions that's cost you something. Yeah, me too. Thank God for His grace. Even in the midst of it all, listen, I want you to know, God's still got a purpose and a plan for your life. And if you'll repent, if you'll turn to Him today, listen, you'll see. If you look back one day, it might not even be in this earth. It might be in a life to come. But you're going to look back sometime. And you, you right now, you think, God, what in the world are you doing? This is just chaos. That you're going to go, oh, wait. Just like I did at that college graduation. A few weeks after Easter came and I saw this family get gloriously saved, I went, oh, that's why I spoke at a medical and career technical college. That's it. That's the only reason, I promise you. All right? Don't ever go to any of those people in the medical practice because if they learn from me, like, <laughs> I messed them up, I promise you. But listen, it was for that family. That's providence. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.